to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to spend the next four weeks on these verses, verses 18 through 21. I'd like to start by quoting to you from Francis Chan from his book, Forgotten God, subtitled, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. This is what he says, If I told you I had an encounter with God and He entered my life to empower me with His presence to live a radically different kind of life, wouldn't you expect to see some amazing improvements? Yet, when those outside the church see no difference in our lives, they begin to question our integrity, our sanity, or even worse, our God. When was the last time you saw the Holy Spirit undeniably at work in or around you? It's a great question. And so we're going to talk about this spirit-filled life for the next four weeks. We're going to look at the magnitude, the means, the method, and the marks. And I'm convinced it is the most, it is the most amazing life you could ever hope or dream to live this side of heaven. And uh, that's where we're going. Let me begin with a word of prayer, and we're going to dive into this text this morning. I'm excited about this uh, new teaching series. Let's pray. Father God, um, we are amazed by your grace. You are the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, according to 1 Timothy 6.16. With the width of your hand, you marked out the heavens, and yet, and yet you sent your Son, our Savior, so that we may know you. And those who put their faith in you, though the highest heavens cannot contain you, you have chosen to dwell within your people, both both individually and corporately, with your Holy Spirit. What an amazing thought. May the magnitude of that reality dispel all darkness and bring unspeakable joy to our lives as we learn to live the most amazing life we could ever hope or dream to live, that spirit-filled life. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at our text. Let me read through the text. And there's five uh, thoughts that I'm going to share with you this morning as it relates to the magnitude. What is the magnitude, the significance, the importance of the spirit-filled life? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. What is the magnitude of the Spirit-filled life? What is the significance, the importance of the Spirit-filled life? Here's your first fill in the blank on your notes. Number one, it is a relationship with the third person of the Trinity who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next statement there, the Holy Spirit is a person who possesses intellect, emotion, and will. Let me talk about that a little bit, and then I'm going to take you to to a cross-reference here. So first of all, it is a relationship. When you think of relationships, they are really about two-way communication. Would you agree with that? And in that two-way communication, there will be a mutual sharing of both love and truth. And so when we say that it is a relationship with the third person of the Trinity, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this interaction, this two-way communication that we can have with, with God through the Holy Spirit. 
And then the word Trinity, it's an interesting word. So it is a relationship with the third person of the Trinity. One of the big mysteries. This is what I love about God. He's just way, way beyond our ability to fully comprehend. He is incomprehensible. There are three big mysteries in the Scripture. You know what they are? One is this, this trinity, that God is one in essence, three in person. Though the word trinity is never found in Scripture, though the concept is throughout the Scripture, there are those that would deny the trinity, and in so doing, they also will deny the deity of Jesus Christ. But the Bible is very clear about this particular topic. But the other two mysteries are, one is the hypostatic union of Jesus, that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his glory. And when he was on this earth, he was still 100% God, 100% man, hypostatic union. It's hard for us to wrap our finite brains around. Our brains are too puny for infinite, for the infinite, and that is understanding God. And, uh, and so that's kind of the big second mystery. The third mystery is... God's sovereignty in man's responsibility. Where's the line drawn? And of course, people have been debating that for years. You've got the various camps that tend to polarize that, and yet, and yet they're all part of Scripture, and uh, they are mysteries that we can't really fully wrap our brains around. And so it is a relationship, this two-way communication with the third person of the Trinity, certainly a biblical idea concept, who is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is a person. We need to talk about that just for a moment. Not a force, not a feeling, not an energy field, not an it, but a he, a person who possesses intellect, emotion, and will. So it's, it's kind of important for us to to establish the foundation of this teaching series. You don't need to turn there. The verses will be up there, but these are great verses. They're, they're really the kind of the foundational verses that prove this point that I'm making here uh, as it relates to the Holy Spirit being, being fully God. It's found in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm not going to give you time to kind of get there, but uh, here's the verses up on the big screen. Let me read uh, through this. This is an interesting verse. It says, But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled, you, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To lie to the Holy Spirit. Take note of that, that phrase, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now, let me give you a little bit of the context here. In this day and time, this was a first century church. The Holy Spirit is being poured upon the church. There's phenomenal things beginning to take place. Many people are, becoming, uh, are, be, are being saved and being added to that early church, that first century church that started off with about 120 in this upper room when they experienced the power of God, the presence of God. And so God's beginning to add to their number, and there's a lot of needs, and so people are bringing, they're, they're literally selling a lot of their stuff and bringing those proceeds to the church, and they're giving them out to help meet people's needs. And so what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, let me continue reading here, they give a portion and, and they kind of pretend as if they were giving it all. But notice what it says here, so why... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, he's saying you weren't required to give this. You didn't have to give anything. It was all yours. And yet you deceived us thinking that you were giving everything and what he's saying is that you deceived, you actually thought that you were actually lying to the Holy Spirit. He goes on, he says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So you can see the connection there. So he says, you, in your heart, your heart, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Holy Spirit is God, third person of the Trinity. This is an interesting story. 
Immediately when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a, a phrase that says, you, you, may, you may be able to fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool God any time. I mean, you can't fool him one, one bit. And I find it interesting that they were more preoccupied with how they looked to the early church congregation, that they wanted to appear to be very generous. By the way, those who encounter the Lord Jesus Christ are radically generous. It, it just seems to be kind of the byproduct of someone's life that has, that has experienced the amazing grace of God, that the overflow of their life is radical generosity, and yet they were doing it in, in a form of pretense, kind of pretending. And, and so it's, it's really quite interesting. And, and, and as I thought about this, I want you to think about this. All of our problems, even our sins, are due to the fact that we either don't know God or in the moment have forgotten who He is. Because they were living almost as if they didn't know God. Why would they make such a big deal about trying to, to win the approval of, of people horizontally when they already had God's approval vertically? Why were they preoccupied with this pretense trying to put on a show when when they've got God's favor, the favor of God, obviously they didn't believe it. And obviously, at that moment in time, they, either they didn't know God, or in that moment of time, they forgot who God really is. Now listen to me. All of our problems, whether we lie, cheat, or steal, all of our sins, all go back to the fact that we either don't know God or in that moment of time we have forgotten who God is. And that's, what, that's the point of the, those verses. And I, I think it's important for us to, to really understand that. Um, let me ask you this. In, in fact, let me add to that. If you have inordinate, we talked about it over the last couple of weeks, that whole Vertigo series, focusing in on the seventh chapter of Romans, that if you have inordinate emotions, inordinate desires, let's start with inordinate desires. If, you're, if you have a desire for anything on this planet Earth in creation more than God, you're more passionate about a relationship or money or anything more than God, it's evident to me that you don't know God. Because you would, if you begin to really understand who God is, you would see how foolish to pursue such empty things in this world in creation. What you've done is you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, as Ananias and Sapphira did, and you are worshiping created things more than the Creator. Now, either you don't know God, or in that moment of time, which we all do, we forget who God is, as Ananias and Sapphira obviously were. By the way, you know how the rest of that story goes? They had to get a couple body bags. I mean, it's a frightening story. And, and it's so frightening, we're going to actually uh, deal with it here after Easter. We're going to actually work through the book of Acts. But it, it shows you, I mean, God means business with us. And that if we think that we can play games and just kind of thumb our nose at God, He knows us. He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's all omnipresent. Omniscient means He's all-knowing. He's ever-present with us, and our greatest concern should be not how we look to the world, but what God thinks about us. And the fact is, is that He's with us. And so if you have inordinate desires, any desire that exceeds your desire for God, man, you don't know God, because His love is better than life. And... Um, if you have inordinate emotions. Excessive anxiety. Remember, we talked about this last week. If you have a good thing and it's threatened, you'll worry. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing and it's threatened, you're going to fall apart. I mean, and you can kind of work that out. So, inordinate anxiety, inordinate anger, Inordinate depression. 
It's all evidence within my own heart. I don't know God. Or in that moment of time, in my interaction with life, I have forgotten. I have forgotten about God. So it's, I mean, it's, when you read through this text, it's pretty convicting when you really understand that. Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea how much he loves you? And to what, to what measures he has gone to pursue you and to win your heart, the cross. And when you understand that and you live in the reality of it, his love chases away the fears. And so, um, so it's important to kind of understand that. I think it's a good foundation for us as we kind of work through this. So let me ask you this. Why do you do what you do? When you do things, whatever you might do, why do you do what you do? When you are moral or virtuous, is it common virtue or true virtue? Remember, we've, I've talked to you about this. I've taught you from Jonathan Edwards, 18th century theologian, phenomenal theologian. And he wrote the book, The Nature of True Virtue, and he made a distinction. And uh, well, let, me, let me explain it like this. I, I, this last week, Game of Life, I, I shared this story. I told everybody in our Game of Life uh, that uh, I don't uh, rubberneck. I don't rubberneck. You guys know what a rubberneck means when it comes to girls, gals, women? I don't rubberneck uh, because my wife will smack me. That's not why I don't rubberneck, okay? Because she will smack me. That would be common virtue. That would be fear and pride motivated. Fear, my wife might see. Pride, you're better than that. Which, by the way, oftentimes our morality and our virtuous behavior is oftentimes motivated by this kind of common virtue. It's extrinsic motivation. It's based on fear and pride. Jonathan Edwards actually said there's a much deeper motivation, and it's not fear and pride extrinsic, but it's intrinsic, and it's a heart that is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I don't rubberneck because my wife will smack me, because what happens when my wife isn't there? Or that you, you might see me, Pastor Ray, I saw him, man, he was checking out those girls over there at Arrowhead Mall. And I don't rubberneck because, you know, when I'm with my wife, a lot of times I wear my glasses, and she doesn't see where my eyes are going, and I can be looking at things that what she doesn't know won't hurt her. It's not because of her, it's not because of this congregation, no, because I've, I have through the years cultivated an habitual, conscious communion with the living God. And whether she sees me or not, it doesn't matter, he does. And I also know that, that I don't rubberneck because it objectifies multidimensional image bearers of God, it's demeaning to women, and this God who they are created in his image to be demeaning to them, in essence, I am trampling on his love and wisdom, not only for their lives, but for my life and how I should, how I should respond and behave in relationship to those of the opposite sex within my life. So it's interesting, as I look at my life and why I do what I do, is it is it because of the presence of God in my life or is it because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to get caught? I don't want to get caught. Do you know that God is with you and loves you? See, anything other than that, I believe, is not going to last in the long run. You're going to crash and burn eventually because that extrinsic motivation at some point in your life is not going to be there anymore. But if you have intrinsic motivation, it doesn't matter who's watching. See, and that's the Christian life because you know that the third person of the Trinity is with you and loves you. And, uh, and that's important to always keep that in mind. Otherwise, when I was thinking about this, why, why is this such a harsh, uh, harsh crime, in a sense, with Ananias and Sapphira? Because it's treasonous. It's, a, it's treason for me to live this, this duplicitous, betrayal, disloyalty kind of life that I would be more concerned about what you think about me or what my wife thinks about me than what God thinks about me. It's treason. I'm not living in the reality of his presence for my life. You see, it's one thing to say, 
I don't believe in God, and you live your life as if there is no God. But it's another thing to say, I believe in God, and yet you live your life as if there is no God. You're more concerned about what people say or think about you than what God has said for you once and for all on Calvary through the cross. So, I mean, you can kind of see how that works out deep in our heart. I have forgotten, or I don't know God, or I have forgotten in that moment who it is that walks through my day with me. Now, when you think of this, this idea of the omnipresence of God, this, he's omniscient, this relationship, two-way communication, I was thinking about this. The omnipresence of God, his omniscience, his, he's all-knowing, is both convicting and comforting, isn't it? It's convicting in the fact that, that my wife might not see me, but he sees me. That's convicting. Because there have been certainly times that I, that I was more concerned about what people thought. And, I, and, I had, and then the Lord brought me to my, you know, kind of brought me to my senses and said, wait a minute, you don't need to be concerned about them. I'm with you. So it's very convicting, but it's also very comforting. That when I'm going through a difficult time, I know he's there. But this is what I found. That if I kind of play games with him, and he's not there when I want to do bad, but I know that he's always there when I want to do good and I need help, then he's probably not going to be there because if it's not convicting to you, his omnipresence, it won't be comforting when you need him. If you're kind of playing games with that kind of thing, does that make sense to you? So it's important to cultivate that because he's always there regardless of what you want to say or think or however you might want to behave. He is always there. And it can be both, both convicting and comforting. So what is the magnitude, significance, importance of the spirit-filled life? It is a relationship with the third person of the Trinity who is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is a person who possesses intellect, emotion, and will. Here's the next point on your notes. Number two, the Holy Spirit is the helper who the Father sent to be with the church after Christ ascended into heaven, coming to live within those who put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the fill in the blanks, their helper. So the Holy Spirit is the helper, and he came to live within those who put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 14, 16 through 17. Let me read those. This is, this is phenomenal. Jesus, this is part of the upper room discourse. Uh, Jesus is about ready to exit and leave his disciples, and this is what he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Some translations, what are some of the other translations say? Comforter, yeah. That would be the other, one of the other uh, translations. So another comforter or another helper to be with you, look at this, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world, notice this, the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, we can't see him either, but we know that he's there. We have a sense that you can see his work, you can see his presence. You can't see the wind, but you can see the evidence of the wind. So those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ that have put our faith in him, we certainly sense him and see his work, and that's what he's talking about here. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, in you. That's an amazing thought, the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 puts it this way. You do not know, wait, do you not know, okay, I'll get that. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now think about that just for a minute. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you did that, he placed his Holy Spirit to live within you. You have the spirit of God within you. That's amazing. The word another is, a, is an interesting word. It can be used in two different ways. Another, another helper, another of the same kind versus another of a different kind. In other words, I could send you a comforter uh, and it, would be, and it could be another of a different kind, another of a different kind. Uh, I will send you a 
a dog, not a cat. Cats aren't good comforters, but a dog. But that would be another of a different kind. But he doesn't say that. It's another of the same kind. As I was with you, and think about this, this is what he's saying. As I was with you, so the Holy Spirit will be with you. Is what he's saying. And the word, the word helper or comforter is, the word is paracletus, which means one called alongside to help. Have you ever thought about this? Imagine what it would have been like to be with Jesus, be one of his disciples. Have you ever thought about that? Would, that? would that be cool or what? I mean, to have a front row seat, to watch him feed multitudes and heal the sick and, and confound the, the skeptics and the religious leaders, kind of twist them up like a pretzel. I love it. And, uh, and, and, and how attractive he was to the irreligious. He seemed to always have an answer to every problem, a solution to every dilemma. And no doubt about it, in his presence with him, you would have never experienced more life, more love, more liberty. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to leave, guys, but I'm going to send you another. Just as I was with you, the Holy Spirit will be with you. You understand the implications of that? Just almost as if, just like I was with you, just all the experiences, you'll have the same kind of experience with the Holy Spirit living within you. It's a pretty amazing thought. Another comforter, another counselor, just as I was with you, the Holy Spirit will be with you. And he even goes on and says, and in fact, you'll do greater works because Jesus could only be in one place at one time, but since all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit upon us, can you see the multiplication of that? That if he is with all of us, if the Holy Spirit is with all of us as he was with his disciples, wow, amazing, amazing peace, power, the presence of God living within us. That's mind-blowing. Here's what I love most about that, the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within us. In fact, this is the best thing. This is absolutely the best thing about the Christian life. And that's just delighting, delighting in his presence, delighting in his presence. He will be with you forever. Do you remember what we read there? He will be with you forever. And learning to practice his presence and delighting in his presence, it's the best thing. When I'm confused, he's my counselor. When I'm afraid, He's my comforter. When I'm lonely, he's my companion. When I'm tempted, he's my strength. Once you've experienced his presence, his absence is unbearable. And there are times when, you, when you've experienced his presence and then you kind of, kind of I, I don't know what it is. We've got an adversary that works against us. We have our own sinful nature. We have the ways of this world. And our lives become so busy, so crazy. And, and oh, oh, how you long to get back to that place of, of delighting in his presence. Enjoying him. Here's the next point on your notes. Number three. <clears throat> It does not mean that we receive more of the Holy Spirit, but that we give him more of ourselves. So this whole idea of spirit-filled life, it does not mean that we get, that we receive more of the Holy Spirit, but that we, we give him more of ourselves. This is what it is. <clears throat> As we yield our lives to the Holy Spirit, He has greater freedom to work in and through our lives in order to, to better exalt and glorify Christ. Now, I gave you, and I always kind of overload you on a lot of different cross-references. You can read those on your own later on and, and study through the growing notes, but let me just kind of allude to some of them here. Romans 8, 4 through 11, it talks about, uh, remember chapter 7 that we covered the last two weeks? This goes right into this wonderful chapter of 
of really, he says here in these verses how important it is that we need to mind the things of the Spirit as opposed to the things of the flesh. Things of the flesh would be a self-centered, self-absorbed life. But the things of the Spirit, when we, when we mind the things of the Spirit, it's really a God-centered, God-glorifying life. And he makes this distinction, and he says that if we mind the things of the flesh, that's, that's going to lead to death. But if we mind the things of the Spirit, he says, life and peace. Romans 12, 1 through 2 he, he, after spending uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans just talking about the amazing grace and mercy of God, he starts chapter 12 by saying, because he's done all of this for you now, your response, your normal response, anybody that understands how much they have in Jesus Christ, they would want to live their life and surrender their life. Their life would be a living sacrifice. And then he goes on in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is he saying there? Day by day, little by little, surrender your life over to God. Increase your capacity to experience more of God in your life. It's not that you're getting more of God, but that he is getting more of you. And that's the idea. You're learning to, to mind the things of the spirit as opposed to the flesh. You're learning to have your mind renewed daily. Uh, so that you can learn to live this spirit-filled life is what he's saying. And then in uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 20, let me read those, those verses. These are phenomenal. It kind of helps us to understand a little more, more of that. He says, starting in verse 17, chapter 4 of Ephesians, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They're ignorant because they're hard-hearted. They have resisted the work of God in their lives. And they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So now he makes this contrast. That's one way that you can live. You can live a life that's, that's self-centered, and that's, in essence, that's the life of the flesh that he's describing here, or a, or a life that's God-centered. That would be that spirit-filled life. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Notice what he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Remember the deceitful desires we talked about last week? Remember the root of our problems? The root of our problems, we talked about it last week. The, the battle that goes on, that, that rages within our heart is really these competing desires seeking to hijack your heart from God's loving, wise rule of your life. It's idolatry is, is the root of our issues is that we would try to give our heart to anything more than we give our heart to God. And that's what he's talking about here. And so he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. These are, these are inordinate desires. These are desires that try to master our lives, but they're deceitful because they say that they're going to promise life, but they don't. It's idolatry. And then he says, and to be renewed in the spirit. Notice that word spirit can be referred to our, our spirit or the Holy Spirit. And in fact, our spirit is not alive until the Holy Spirit makes us alive. But he says renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, it's interesting here, the word drunk do not be drunk on wine. The word means intoxicated, soaked, saturated with, dominated by. To be drunk is not how much alcohol you have, but how much alcohol has you. Would you agree with that? Some people, it doesn't take much. It probably wouldn't take me much. I've never drank alcohol in my life. So it probably would just take me one, okay? One beer probably would put me over, over the top. And... Uh, I've never, never drank, but people that haven't drank probably wouldn't take much. So it's not so much how much you have. Others who have drank, they drank for a living. 
their whole life. You know, they just pounded them down. It would take a lot more. That it's that uh, that that what that which works within us oftentimes. It's that. Uh, it takes more and more to get that buzz, to get that high. And so the idea here, when he says, do not be drunk on wine, to be drunk is not how much alcohol you have, but how much alcohol has you. So this idea of this text that we just looked at, to put off your old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self is really about learning to surrender more and more. It's not how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but how much the Holy Spirit has you. How much the Holy Spirit has you at every moment of your life. And that's what he's talking about. So, so in the moment of your life, in the various moments of your life, when it's, when it's your tendency to respond one way, he says, put off the old, put on the new, renewing of your mind. In that moment, remember who it is that walks through your day with you. Remember, you're living for an audience of one, God. That's, that's really kind of the idea. So as we learn to be spirit-filled, it's not getting more of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit getting more of us in every aspect of our lives. Let me give you an illustration of that. I heard the story of a, of a gal who, um, it's not in this church, attends another church, but uh, she had a real tough time with her sister-in-law. In fact, she hated her sister-in-law. Now, this gal was a Christian, but she hated her sister-in-law, and it was, the reason for it is because her sister-in-law um, was highly critical of her and, and would stir up all kinds of stuff, was critical of her, and, and actually caused her in-laws to be somewhat antagonistic towards her. I mean, and it bothered her. And her, her natural inclination, our natural response when we're in a situation, particularly family situation, and we're being criticized or we've had conflict and it's unresolved, it's either fight or flight. We either fight, we basically say, hey, uh, screw you, you know, I'll, I'll go toe-to-toe with you. You want to criticize me, I'll criticize you back. That's kind of, the, that's kind of a mindset of, of fighting. Or the flight, it's like, I, I won't have anything to do with them. When they have family get-togethers, I'm not even going to get together. I'm not going to even get with them anymore. Now, that would be both the negative response to that, but over time, as she began to understand the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in her life, she realized that both of those responses were more of the flesh that would bring death, and she wanted to respond in the Spirit. And so she began to realize that what her sister-in-law said about her and to her, listen to me, was a flea bite, was a mosquito bite compared to all of who God is and and who she was in Jesus Christ. And the more she began to realize that, the more she could respond with love to her sister-in-law, which, by the way, it's interesting, her sister-in-law started responding back to her in love, and then it created kind of the context for her then to be able to confront her sister-in-law in love and to talk to her about her attitude towards her. Otherwise, it just created major problems. But, it was, but that came out of the result of putting off the old, putting on the new, and realizing, wait a minute, if God is for me, who can be against me? See, she said those words, we all say those words. Those are great words. But the reality of those words began to sink deep into our heart where they became a reality. It was no, no longer a concept. It was a reality. God, you are with me. Why would I stress out over that when I have you? Now, now think about that. Spirit-filled life, then, when you face that temptation that you, tem- you typically would cave into, you have the power of God. And the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise for you. Do you understand what he promises you in that moment when you're being tempted? What about trial? You're being overwhelmed by life. The doctor said, you got cancer. I mean, ah. Or maybe your boss says, hey, this is your last day. You're gone. You've worked for that company for 15, 18 years. Or maybe your significant other says, hey, I found another. I found someone else. How would you respond to those situations? Put off the old, put on the new. 
you begin to rem remind yourself, wow, I have the Holy Spirit with me. By the way, you don't wait until crunch time. You don't wait until game time to get that in order and to begin to work that out in your life. You need to fill your heart up regularly and with the beauty and the value of who Jesus is and all he is for you through his word, through fellowship, through worship. In other words, the reason why we practice the disciplines such as you're here this morning, I, I would hope, is that you're trying to stir up greater appetite within yourself for God, that he would become, he would become HDTV. Yes. And everything else in your life is just AM radio. Just like, it's just a, just a vague memory. There's a, there's a song that, um, that I grew up singing, and it was, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. <laughs> That's the spirit-filled life. It's amazing. Have you ever noticed that uh, how the, the stars in the sky grow strangely dim when the sun comes up? They're still there. But you can't see them. Why? Because of the brightness of the sun. That's what we need in our lives. The brightness of the Son of God shining bright in our heart. And all of those things in our life will grow strangely dim. Here's the next point on your notes. Number four. It is unlike drunkenness, which is a squandering of your life, your time, talents, finances, chastity, etc., but a life that leads to discipline, balance, and maturity. So, so it is unlike drunkenness, which is squandering of your life, and that's literally what drunkenness, this idea of drunkenness leads to. The, the word debauchery literally means a wasted, uncontrolled, immoral life. So it doesn't, doesn't lead to that as being drunk does, kind of a life that's uncontrolled, wasted, but it leads to discipline, balance, and maturity. In Luke 15, 13, it's the story of the prodigal sons, and it's interesting that the younger brother squandered his property in reckless living. Actually, that word is found in Luke 15, 13. It's the same word, debauchery. It's the exact same word. So the idea here is that a person who is drunk squanders his life. And by the way, you can be drunk on work, you can be drunk on porn, you can be drunk on video games or shopping or parenting or romance. It can be bad things that we're pursuing. It can be good things that we've, we've elevated to ultimate things in our lives. We get drunk on those things. We think that I have to have these things to live, whatever they might be. And what he's saying is that ultimately leads to debauchery. It leads to a life that is out of control, a life of imbalance and a lack of maturity in our lives. Being filled with the Spirit is really the opposite of debauchery, a wasted life. It is a life of discipline, balance, and maturity. Let me read Galatians 5, 16 through 17. It's part of the cross-reference here. He says here, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. So you got this war within, as we talked about the last two weeks, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then the rest of the chapter, what does he talk about? He makes this contrast between the works of the flesh and then the works of what? Actually, the fruit. It's not works, but he says the fruit of the Spirit. So he makes this contrast between these two, that if we follow the ways of the Spirit, we are truly Spirit-filled. We're not going to live a life of that it's meaningless or empty or reckless or excessive, whatever that might be, but we're going to live a life of, of discipline and, and maturity and have a sense of order. And uh, as it says there in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that when push comes to shove, what comes out of my life is more, more love and more joy and peace, that, that I'm actually able to love people that I would otherwise can't stand. Have you ever had a few folks like that? Yeah. So I can actually love those that I'd like to kill. Have you ever felt like that? 
And you're going to have joy in spite of negative circumstances and peace in the midst of chaos. Now, let me tell you a little bit. Let me see if I've got time. Not much. Um, so let me just share with you a little bit. You know, most people who think of spirit-filled life, what do you think of? When you think of spirit-filled life, this is what I used to think of, weird, wild, out-of-control emotions. How many have ever thought that? Weird and wild. I come from a Pentecostal background. This was not uncommon. This actually happened to me. My, and, and God bless my Grandma Davis. She's with the Lord today. But it was not uncommon to be sitting in the middle of a service and um, to, there would be kind of a quiet time. Sometimes it wouldn't even be a quiet time. And she would let out this, woo, blood-curdling kind of scream. And uh, she'd blow the toupee off the guy sitting right in front of her, right off his head. And, uh, and I remember as a kid, like, what in the world was that? And there was some kind of bizarre behavior and some interesting things that were going on. And I remember my Sunday school teacher saying, well, son, that's the Holy Spirit. And I'd say, if that's the Holy Spirit, I don't even want him at all. That's messed up. And then she even defined it. I asked her, so what does that mean to be spirit-filled? Well, she says, well, everybody kind of responds a little bit differently. She says, it'd be like me taking you over and sticking your finger in a light socket. And you might go, ow, and then somebody else might go, woo, and another person might go, oh. She goes, those are all the different responses. And I'm thinking, why would you stick your finger in a light socket? So sometimes when people think of the, the spirit-filled life, they think of being out of control. And yet the Bible says, no, no, it's not debauchery. It's not a reckless, out-of-control life. It's a life in control. It's a life of, as we said here, discipline, balance, and maturity. That if I'm really spirit-filled, I don't care how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you hit the ground, Okay. It's not how wild and crazy you might get, which I've seen people do that, and I found that quite interesting when there was not much change in their life the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday. I'm telling you, you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, it will make a difference in your life. And, uh, and you'll begin to experience more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual life is a life under control. Your body, your time, your tongue, your emotions, using gifts, seeing a lot of fruit, Debauchery can also be translated exhausted. Um, that's, it's interesting because God will never give you more to do than you can do with his power and strength. If you're burned out, then you're not spirit-filled. That's just the bottom. That's what it's saying. Let me take you to the next one. Here we go. Next point, number five. It is like drunkenness in that. So the first way, it is unlike drunkenness, but this is, it is like drunkenness in that it gives you what people go to the bottle to get, and that is the ability to face reality, the ability to face reality. Drunkenness dulls your perception of reality, whereas spirit-filled life intensifies your perception of reality. So why do people drink? Because they want to be happy, because reality is not anything worth looking at, and so we drink so that we can face reality, but the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our life increases reality. How's that? Well, let me give you a couple of verses here, 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. These are phenomenal verses. You're going to want to look these up later on. This is a great story. It's a story of, of Elisha and a servant. Listen to what it says. And when the servant of the man of God, speaking of Elisha, he had a servant rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He was freaking out. I mean, they're going to come in and drag us off. They're going to kill us. Now notice, notice Elisha's response. He said, Let's go to the sports bar on the corner and watch the girls dance and get drunk. It's right there in the Bible. No, he didn't say that. No, he said, hey, let's go get liquored up and we can face the reality of this. No, this is what he says. This is amazing. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elijah. In other words, God outnumbered him. And his servant began to see that. That's the spirit-filled life. When you begin to see, it's just not a concept anymore, but it's a reality. God is for me, not against me. In fact, my prayer often is, God, show me that. Show me your glory. Show me the reality of you being in my life and how you are greater than all of my trials and trauma and temptations. Let me see that and show us, your people here at Desert Breeze, your glory. See, that's the spirit-filled life. That when we see the greatness of God in comparison to whatever we're facing, I'm telling you, we can face it. We can face it with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that's our hard cry. There's another uh, couple verses there you can read on your own, Luke 24, 30 through 32. The same thing happens to them. They're depressed, they feel dejected, and, and Jesus begins to speak to them, and, and in fact it says that their eyes are opened, and they begin to realize, this is Jesus, amazing. You can read that on your own. Let me wrap this up, and we're gonna take communion this morning. But here's my last point on your notes. Spirit-filled hearts are ablaze with the truth of the beauty, splendor, and glory of who Jesus is and what he has done that exceeds, that outshines, is more vivid, it is more real, it is more satisfying than all the competing perspectives, passions, and priorities. <laughs> That's what you and I need today and every day. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you can just uh, let the communion tray pass by. They're gonna be passing it out in a moment. If you'd like to come to know him, I would invite you this morning to acknowledge your sin. That's where we all begin. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and then confess him as Lord and Savior. And then if you put your faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ, you can feel free to take communion with us. God, we're so thankful for your grace, we're thankful for your goodness. And God, show us your glory. Show us your presence. May you become more real to us today and every day than any of our problems, our trials, or our difficulties. And Lord, as we see your glory, may we live for your glory. Because God, you are most glorified in us as we are more and more satisfied in you. So may we find our deepest satisfaction in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.